Welcome back to the Dark Matter Podcast. For this fourth episode, I'm thrilled to be joined by Nivedita Raju, who works as a researcher at CIPRI, the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. However, she's just coming to talk to us in her own name, and I'm just giving some context as to what she does in her daily life. Her areas of expertise spans across different topics. Space law, of course, but also space security, space policy, international law as well, and feminist legal theory. Nivedita, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Ryan. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Looking forward to our chat. Of course. My pleasure. Um, Actually, today we pick things up where we left them last week. So in the last episode, I spoke with Sabah Al-Shawa. She gave us a really profound take on what security is, what security is about in space. Uh, But that was more from a political thought perspective. Actually, we touched upon many topics, even virtual reality and consciousness. So if you guys haven't seen episode three, definitely go and check it out. But today we continue this conversation on space security from more of a legal perspective. And as we are going to talk about this and explore some of the challenges that make uh, the legal framework in space so complex, we'll also uh, take a closer examination of a quite touchy topic, the moon. But let's first start with a concrete and quite simple or straightforward case study. A few months before the invasion of Ukraine, Russia conducted an anti-satellite test, ASAT test. Uh, one of their own satellites was defective and it was a good opportunity for them to, to test out their, their ASAT system. But at that time, uh, Nivedita, you wrote an article for uh, CIPRI in which you argued that this event should lead to a multilateral ban on ASAT tests. Can you tell me why does Russia's destruction of its own space object constitute a threat to space security? Thanks, and I think that's also a, a really good a really good place to kind of start the discussion also today. Um, well, okay, going back a little bit to what to what an ASAT test is, right? So anti-satellite test, ASAT weapons, we've seen these these words being thrown around a lot in the media. And essentially, these can refer to different types of weapons which target the satellite component, the space component or the space segment of um, of a space system. And so you have co-orbital anti-satellite weapons. You also have uh, direct ascent anti-satellite weapons. And what we saw from Russia was a DAA SAT test, that is a direct ascent anti-satellite test, where it struck down its own its own space object. Now, only three other countries have conducted these tests, that is China, India, the US, and Russia, um, a- apart from Russia. And this is problematic. Many would argue, okay, well, this was only a state conducting a test against its own space object. Why should this be an issue for international security? Why should this be concerning for all states? Well, it's because these tests are destructive. Um, When we use the term destructive, we mean that it has a physical impact of, of creating debris in outer space. And so... When there are when when you're conducting a test and you have so many fragments of debris that are intentionally created, this debris now poses a threat to all other users of space because it can now collide with their space objects. And um, also taking a moment here to acknowledge the what is commonly referred to as the Kessler syndrome, where when you have when space debris is generated, these fragments can then collide into each other and create sort of a cascading effect. So the debris then multiplies in orbit. And again, this this increases the chance of collision. This increases the you know risks again for all other users. 
And so when you have an event as dire as this, it is a threat to all other users of space. It is a threat to international security. And there are many, I think there were many states that did condemn the test after, and this is arguably what has spurred the US to come to sort of put forward this, this national pledge, saying that it would not conduct ASAT tests. And um, eventually other states followed suit. And this has culminated now in a general assembly resolution, which was passed by the US, um, which was, sorry, which was passed by the UN last year and led by the US um, and adopted by a majority of states. And so now 155 states have um, have adopted this and argued in favor of it and conduct and committed not to conduct direct ascent ASAT tests. And so it's not just this one event. I would say the that China's test in 2007, which also created a lot of debris, India's test in 2019, which um, there is still much of the debris is deorbited, but this was still concerning because any debris is still problematic. Um, and I would say that this it's the worrying trend, the rise in the number of tests being conducted that has culminated in this in uh, in this sort of bringing us one step closer, I think, to a multilateral ban. Um, the actual a ban by consensus is still quite far off. Um, in terms of the voting pattern, nine states voted against and nine states abstained. So we're not quite there yet. But this is still, I would say, a significant step forward. Um, and so, yes, it's worrying from the point of view of generating debris, but it's also worrying in terms of it's not quite clear what the drivers for these tests are. Um, what was it exactly that what were all the different factors that prompted Russia into conducting this test at that time? Um, this is uh, there are many arguments put forward by experts. It's the same with the Indian test, the same with the Chinese test. In the Indian case, um, there, 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 there are statements to support that it was China's test that then led India to conduct to start developing these capabilities. Um, but again, I think that these drivers are not quite clearly established. They do sort of reflect this action-reaction dynamic, which is extremely worrying. And so, rather than encouraging more states to conduct these tests, especially states that have um, rivalrous relationships, I think it's really important that. That it, that the, the the international community comes together and and makes sure that these tests, which have such a detrimental effect to all stakeholders, should stop being conducted. Right, that makes sense. So, so what would be an, on Earth not an issue becomes an issue because the the debris that you mentioned now they're all around the Earth, and does that also raise questions of can we attribute those debris afterwards once the the the, the space object has been destroyed? Can we, from a legal and I suppose also technical point of view, attribute um, and give liability for, for these debris or is that just impossible? So it's a good question. And maybe now I'll provide a little more legal context again for the for the ASAT test issue as well. Um, we have we have a number of space treaties that are legally binding that have been in force for for decades. Um, and this begins with the, the Outer Space Treaty, um, which was adopted in 1967. Um, now, the Outer Space Treaty under Article 4, it does not prohibit all weapons. It prohibits the, the placement of weapons of mass destruction in orbit. And so this is very specific. It does mean that conventional weapons and um, weapons in transit are not, are not prohibited. Um, so the ASAT test therefore sort of falls a little under that because it does not amount to a use of force, although some may argue that it does because of the effect of a debris, but in my opinion, it would not. It's a little bit of a little bit hard to push that argument. Um, so it would not fall under this um, the, the boundaries of Article 4. 
There is another provision in the Outer Space Treaty under Article 9, um, which says that um, states are obligated to engage in international consultations. Um, if it becomes, if it has reason to believe that there's um, uh, an event which causes potentially harmful interference. Now, even from this wording, you can see that there's a lot of subjectivity in there. Um, if a state has reason to believe something that may potentially cause harmful interference, you know, there's a lot of room, there's a lot of wiggle room essentially there. Um, and states haven't really haven't really engaged in these international consultations to date, so to speak. Um, and so I think that the first issue is that the the treaty does have some limits. I get very annoyed when when um, when some say that state uh, that that, that uh, when when anyone says that space is the wild west because that's not true. Um, there are limits to what you can do in space, but I think that there is a lot more clarity needed on what on, on the exact extent of those limits. And so it's it's sort of similar when it comes when it comes to liability. Uh, we have a very clear regime, the Liability Convention. It's another one of the space treaties. And um, this establishes two separate regimes for liability. Um, one is in case of, um, of accidents um, on the surface of the Earth or, or air to aircraft in flight. And the other is for um, between space objects or, um, and, and so you have these two different regimes, one which has absolute liability and the other for space, for any accidents, collisions between space objects, for example, that is fault-based liability. And so what that means is um, if there is such an accident, such an event, um, the state bringing the claim has to then prove fault. And again, this makes it a lot harder if the onus is on the claimant, it makes it a lot harder to establish fault. Um, and I would say that there also isn't much precedent under the liability convention because states in, in cases that have happened, it's ultimately resulted in diplomatic settlements. Um, and so, and there is still a number, there are still a number of legal questions under the treaty as well. So for example, what is, um, when it, the treaty mentions damages, does this include direct or indirect damages? There is proof to show that it includes only direct damages, but this again has not been completely established by consensus among inst international stakeholders. Um, and and even the very definition of a space object, which space lawyers love to talk about, um, the very helpfully the treaty defines a space object as including including components thereof. Um, so what is a space object? Well, it's it's something that's still under under debate, and a lot of course experts have written on this. Um, but just to say that there are still many questions under these conventions and a lot more left to interpretation. So how does debris fit into that? Well, for one thing, there is a limit to also um, the extent to which we can track debris generated from an event such as the ASAT test. Um, we can only track debris up to a certain size. And this is problematic because even debris the size of paint flecks can, in, can inflict severe damage on other space objects. Um, so I think that it's it, it goes to show that, well, one, we, we seriously need to collaborate more. We need to work together more to increase our situational awareness. Um, but we also need to work harder, not just to mitigate and, you know, sort of intervene later to address the impact of debris, but we need to prevent the creation of, of debris to start with. Um, and while while there is a lot of engagement on addressing these questions under the conventions, um, you know, we have the UN Copious, we have the UN OEWG, GGEs, which all come together to discuss these law and policy issues. It is still really important at the same time that we try and prevent problematic events from arising in the first place, which sounds really utopian, I know, but it, it is also something that's extremely urgent. Mm -hmm. To come back to a, a phrase that you, you, you mentioned, the Wild West, that indeed we hear a lot about space and it is a bit, I think, uh, simplistic perhaps. 
but it does point at you know challenge of international law in general, not generally, not necessarily just for space. That it's very difficult to apply. Um, you know, I studied international relations, so more from a political perspective. But we heard those challenges in the from this realist uh, school of thought of well, if I don't respect international law, who's going to do anything? Who's the police who's going to uh, take take charge of this um, this offense? Um, would you say that international law in the context of space is harder to apply even more so than international law, uh, let's say, on Earth? I, I would think it's still the same. Um, we still have that. I mean, international space law at the end of the day also still is sort of follows and has to comply with the broader and more general international law, which is, again, another provision in the space treaty and under Article 3. And so I would view it as an extension of the same, having the same, having similar sort of issues. Um, I do think what makes space, what makes the space case unique is, is that the physics of space is entirely different. And so while it is helpful to have these sort of analogous, you know, these comparisons with maritime or with aviation, that's extremely useful. There are definitely lessons that can be learned from these different subsets of international law. But I think, again, it's it's not very easy to actually apply to the space domain because the physics of space works so differently. Um, you know, we see, for example, another issue that has been quite problematic in, in recent years and is being discussed in these fora is, um, is rendezvous, uncoordinated and, and non-consensual rendezvous and proximity operations. Um, you know, when one state, uh, one state space object is maneuvered close to another state space object without its express consent. Um, now, there isn't a definition of what is close, what is an acceptable distance between these two. Um, but at the same time, it's it, there's also a lot of arguments between, and, and we see this, where some say, ah, well, you know, what if there's a satellite out there and it can suddenly change its mind and move towards mine? But it takes a lot of fuel. It takes a lot of, uh, I would say, uh, it, it should be predetermined, a lot of calculations beforehand for this to actually happen and for a, and a lot of planning for such a maneuver to actually take place. And so I think that it's the realities that we have to deal with in the space domain that make um, that make international space law a lot harder. Um, that is uh, that being said, I think that in terms of the broader issue of enforcement that you're referring to, that's pretty much the same with space. What happens when there is an actor that behaves irresponsibly? Um, what happens if there's um, an actor that uh, an actor that behaves unlawfully? It's going to be the same under international law. Um, you know, you'd have the same responses of sanctions, of condemning. Um, so I think that in that sense, it's it's still it's still quite the same. Understood. Maybe maybe that will evolve also as the technologies develop and perhaps we become more fuel efficient and those maneuvers become easier. But that's that's still a way away. Um, but let's talk about the moon a little bit. You mentioned earlier the Article Four of the UN Outer Space Treaty, which is you know as you said the main framework uh, for space and lunar activities. Um, in one of the articles you wrote, you talk about the very special status that the moon has, uh, and there's an obligation to use the moon for exclusively peaceful purposes. Um, I have here a, a long quote, but you know, I, I won't get into it actually, and just ask you about this, this threshold uh, for peaceful activities in relation to the moon and perhaps just to get us started, what, what it means. Sure, and I'm, I'm really happy you asked this question because I love talking about the moon as well. Um, well, so. First of all, the, the, the Space Treaty makes a reference to using space for peaceful purposes. Um, this phrase, peaceful purposes, has been, it's been subject to interpretation, and we've had to look at how states have sort of implemented this provision. Um, initially, there was some questioning whether peaceful meant entirely non-military. 
and while this again may have been ideal it wasn't really possible because space has always been used for military purposes um from the very first from the very first missions from for being used for reconnaissance and surveillance and even missions actually being conducted by military personnel so it's not really feasible to argue that space should be used for peaceful in the non-military sense um and so then when we when we look at the at the practice of states it's very clearly uh, inferred that space is used for peaceful meaning non-aggressive purposes um however peaceful purposes for space appears in the preamble and then you have article 4 and article 4 paragraph 2 talks about how the moon not space the moon should be used for exclusively peaceful purposes so now what does exclusively peaceful purposes mean we just know that it means well something higher than just peaceful and um, the rest of this paragraph goes on to specify what is prohibited and what is expressly permitted on the moon and overall, when you look at this comparison, I think it just shows that there is a higher threshold of demilitarization for the moon and that this means that we need to work even harder to establish um, a framework for enhanced coordination and for inf enhanced information sharing and overall deconfliction to ensure that whatever this threshold is, it's not crossed. Um, and this is something that I think, again, scholars, experts today continue to discuss, but it's a question that we need to engage with a little bit more, especially not only between like-minded nations, that's a really good first step. And we're seeing that again with the Artemis Accords, you know, we're seeing that with states coming together. Um, but it, this also, it's sort of essential that this happens, that we have these conversations between states with, um, with rivalrous relationships. Uh, and I think that that's going to be a key next step. Because we need to make, I mean, while we inquire into what the extent of this threshold is, at the very least, we need to ensure that this first sentence is complied with and take efforts in that direction. Well, I'm, I'm glad it is confusing, not just for me, but also for legal experts, because when I read it, there, there are phrases that to me are very contradictory. Said, there's an express permission for military personnel, for scientific research or any other peaceful uh, purposes. To me, it seems like just a slippery slope to engage military personnel in a non-military fashion. It, it just seems a bit confusing. But you mentioned the Artemis Accords. Maybe we can uh, talk about that a little bit. So for some context, the, it's a U.S.-led um, initiative, uh, should I say. Uh, but it's also in parallel to another initiative that was uh, started, I think, around the same timing by China. Can you tell us about the dynamic of these two initiatives and where we're headed? Sure, and again, a really good question, very timely. Um, yes, the Artemis Accords, again, these are not, this is not to con convey that they're in agreement. These are principles. It's a non-binding, um, it's a non-binding framework that the U.S. is leading um, in terms of partnering with other initiatives for lunar, for lunar missions. Um, and around the same time, uh, the, uh, the, the International Lunar Research Station proposed by China and Russia was also then introduced as the same initiative. I would say maybe I, I don't remember how many months later, but shortly after. And so it was immediately concluded that these are two sort of are these two sort of competing initiatives then. Um, the, I, I would also maybe refer uh, our, our listeners to um, Open Lunar Foundation, which has done segments on this. Um, there was also, I believe, a, a session on um, on the ILRS and even coordinating, I think, under the Moon Dialogues. Um, and I would I would definitely encourage uh, viewers and listeners to to follow that. Um, but I think the, the issue there is 
now we have these two sort of initiatives and we know that these states don't really get along so what happens then how do we introduce new measures for deconfliction how do we introduce measures for coordination between these two between these two initiatives um at the same time there there is some concern that ah oh, well you know the moon is the moon it's not something that's so urgent we don't really need to introduce these measures right away but at the same time i think this raises the question of what states are looking to achieve in these missions um and even when it comes to resources on the moon probably might be dealt with under another segment of your of your podcast but even resources are not spread evenly there will be specific specific spots or specific uh, specific locations where states would be most interested in conducting their research and in and, and in, in in these missions um and so it will be necessary at some point for these two initiatives to sort of to sort of be in coordination with each other and it's not as difficult i would say as some imagine it to be there is some some sparks of positive precedents i would say in, in the past where where nasa and cnsa have coordinated um when it comes to the moon so i i do think that this is something that we could maybe look for looking for positive examples for for transparency and confidence building between states especially when it comes to the moon because we know that now we have this legal threshold this is something that we don't want to test the boundaries of this is something we should proceed with um with extreme caution to begin with um and while and the artemis accords again i think that this is a really great initiative to bring more states on board but at the same time it's important to to understand that we do have states that are not part of the artemis accords and so while trying to while these and these conversations are ongoing at the un copus as well but it is important while that's ongoing to make sure that these are bridged and that there is coordination between these initiatives at the same time so you're saying there's there's hope that it will not create too much rivalry but I mean you also talk in one of your papers about the timing of the announcement for this initiatives there was for, first the US uh, led Artemis accords and I don't know if it was a few weeks or, or whatever but very closely right after the ILRS so the Chinese led initiative was was announced almost as a response it would seem to the um Artemis accords so is it is it some kind would the analogy of a cold war or sort of a a a sizing up of each other would that be a right analogy or am i going too far <laughs> i hope not maybe i'm not best placed to answer that i'm not and i'm not entirely sure i mean we have no idea how the negotiations for these went behind the scenes um you know whether uh, whether there were discussions behind closed doors of the of the us trying to involve china and russia i'm i'm not really privy to those of course but i think that it's I think that it does it is telling that there is of course an, another group of spacefaring nations that um that aren't that don't necessarily share the same views and that will nonetheless be engaged in space activities and more specifically lunar activities um and excluding them from conversations is not going to be very useful in in the security context uh so I think that I think that that would be the main issue there So we so we have a lot of space powers including here in Europe who are very very keen on putting boots uh, on the moon or back on the moon for some of them uh, but more than that as we're alluding to the next step for for everybody really seems to be putting a base on the moon and a permanent base on the moon now there's a question as we we've been talking about civilian military base what are the the limits but um can you tell us maybe about the conditions under which that would be permitted and and legal and perhaps in a more um um if you can take a guess or an estimation of uh how that would impact the other nations in the sense of is there a strong first mover advantage is the first person to establish a base now sort of ruling the moon or 
or is that not so much the case? You mentioned some, some shared area would be possible on the moon as well. That's a really great question again. And I think that so that's something that I have sort of flagged as a, as a problem in, in some of my past research, because I think that the first mover advantage, it's not just true for the moon. Well, again, very, well, very clearly evident in the case of the moon, but for space in for space activities in general, um, and you do sort of see, I think, this political, these pol these political divides between, um, I, I don't like using the word spacefaring, but let me just say a divide between developing and, or, or states between the global north and global south, states that have space ambitions then that want to engage in these activities and want to conduct these missions. And then you have states that already have that technology that do have the ability to sort of shape the policies, shape, start shaping the norms there. Um, and, you know, mandating how these activities are carried out. And and so when it comes to the moon in that sense, yes, I think there is very clearly something that we need to worry about is the first mover advantage. Um, more powerful states dictating how activities are conducted to the detriment of others and or maybe without expressly engaging in those stakeholder discussions to, to kind of consider what those concerns would be. Um, I think that that's always going to be a major issue when it comes to space and the moon, the moon in particular. Um, and I, I think that that to some extent that can be addressed maybe by trying to make this process as inclusive as possible. Um, something that I feel very passionately about when it comes to space is that it is something that impacts all of us. And so again, maybe maybe trying e trying even harder to to sort of conduct these um, consultations with states more broadly. Um, what would a shared base base look like? A non-military base look like? Um, you know, how could more states be contributing to that? Is there a way for um, is there a way for states that have that first mover advantage to play sort of responsible stewardship role rather than you know making those decisions immediately on behalf of others? Again, this is a lot more. I would say this is um, political ideology that we're leading into, less legal. Um, but we don't really have any sort of precedent for this, and I think that's all the more reason why it's it's urgent that we engage in these discussions for that today. Absolutely, that's a fascinating topic. Um, I have one more question for you, more of an open question. Um, you've touched upon many of these points already, but maybe also a good opportunity for, to summarize a little bit. But recently you co-wrote a paper titled, Don't Delay Getting Serious About Cislunar Security. Can I ask you about some of your recommendations for a sustainable and stable use of space and specifically the moon? Sure. Um, I, I think first, first would be the improving the situational awareness that we have when it comes to the moon. Uh, I think this requires much more enhanced coordination and shared and data sharing between multiple stakeholders. And this is also where the role of non-state actors is, is especially important. Um, I think there are there are so-called amateurs that are actually able to observe what's happening in space with with considerable expertise and we should be learning from them. They should be included in these conversations. And this is of course hard because as you're aware, our international frameworks are only sort of built for state to state engagement. And this is something that is now slowly changing by including, hopefully including non-state actors into processes, at least allowing um, allowing these actors to attend, to contribute, contribute their expertise and sort of help shape these discussions. Um, so I think that that would be the first to improve situational awareness and trying to find ways to closely work with non-state actors. This is especially important when it comes to space because it's the commercial entities that and these and, and amateur observers that are well versed with the technology and that have so much expertise to share. Um, so that would be the first. And I think the second would be to 
um, be extremely cautious of the rhetoric that is being used when it comes to the moon and space. The Wild West one being an example. Um, but for the moon, I would say um, there is there are some individuals who have uh, referred to the Lagrange points on the moon as choke points. And this is something, again, that's rather problematic. As I said before, it's not very simple to summarize the physics of the space environment in this way. Um, and it's also it can also be alarmist and it can also sort of lead to, again, sort of spur this action-reaction dynamic. Um, maybe rhetoric isn't reflective necessarily of the state's policies, but it's still something that can hold considerable weight. So I think being very mindful of, of the rhetoric that we use when we talk about the moon, um, that's another. And finally, I would say just really reminding all stakeholders that it's that the, that we have this higher threshold for exclusively peaceful purposes. We need to we need to have more, I think, more discussions on what that means. But I think it's also really helpful to recognize that this is higher than whatever it, it is for outer space, uh, the rest of outer space. Um, and I think that that's a good way, again, to sort of bring in more non-state actors, including civil society in the discussion. Thank you so much uh, for all these cues and keys you gave us to make sense a little bit better about the legal framework of the moon. This was the fourth episode of the Dark Matter podcast. Uh, I'll see you again next week for the final episode of season one. I'll be joined by two scientists this time from the K KU Leuven University. Um, uh, once again, I'd like to thank Tom, Sean and Andy for helping me put together this episode. And I'll see you very soon. Thank you.